Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. We experience anger. Dr. Harriet Lerner is our nation's most loved and respected relationship expert. An author, speaker, and psychologist, Harriet Lerner is best known for her work on the psychology of women, marriage, and family relationships. She is the author of 11 books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Dance of Anger, which has sold 3 million copies and been translated into 35 foreign editions. Dr. Harriet Lerner has been on the show before, and I'll have links to the previous interview on her interview page today. Today, Harriet returns to talk more about anger and how you can use it as a messenger to clarity. Harriet, hello and welcome back. Oh, I'm delighted to be back. So thankful that you did this work and you've put this book out there for it because it's changed generations of people out there. And um, but for those who still haven't, you know, been reached, I'm hoping we can reach them and also for people, others to revisit. I have made a decision recently that your book, The Dance of Anger, is a book that is on my list to reread every year because I think there is great reminders in there even for somebody like me to go out and practice and incorporate into my own life. Um, so I wanted to talk about why anger is not bad and how it can actually be a tool for change. Well, anger is a really important emotion for two reasons. One is that Anger helps us to define ourselves. Anger can help us to say, this is what I think, this is what I feel, these are the things I will and will not do, this is the ground I stand on. And anger also is a vehicle for change, that our anger can signal that something isn't right. And if you look at, I mean, whether you look at in personal relationships like a marriage or you look, let's say, the political situation like the civil rights movement or the women's movement, um, it's anger that often inspires us to say, you know, you can't treat me this way. Um, so anger preserves the, the dignity of the self. And it's there for a good reason. When our dignity or integrity is violated, unfortunately, we don't tend to use anger in these important ways to define who we are and as a vehicle for change. Instead, we do dysfunctional things with our anger, which is why I wrote The Dance of Anger. So, Harry, is it? Is that because we get clouded in the shame of, oh my gosh, I need to be a nice girl or a nice woman and I shouldn't feel these horrible feelings? Well, I do think women learn to deny our legitimate anger and protest um, because of shame. I mean, that's an interesting word. If 
I recently was talking to young women and they said they would never use the word feminist because they don't want to be seen as one of those angry women, as if angry women are unlovable and unfeminine. And um, actually, we have a lot of pejorative terms to describe women who get angry, especially at men. You know, we call them witches, bitches, hags, nags, shrews, strident, ball-breaking, castrating, as if angry women are bad and, and dangerous. And this is so different. I mean, men, you know, men are glorified for standing up and fighting for what they believe in. But women will be um, called these names simply for fighting a bloodless revolution for our own legitimate rights. So I, I think women can deny anger, especially if it's a woman's cause, because it's interesting. Women can express anger on behalf of those weaker than ourselves. For example, mothers against drunk driving. <clears throat> we can express anger on behalf of our children. Um, but if you just look at how people have treated feminists, you see that there's an attempt to shame women into silence if we're fighting a woman's cause. So I, I think that is, that is part of it. And of course, I grew up with all these cultural messages, you know, that, that women are the, um, the peacemakers, the nurturers, the soothers, the steadiers of rock boats. So there are a lot of cultural pressures to be, quote, nice ladies, unquote. Yeah, there you're right. There's so many of those, and um, and that's why I think your work and the book, The Dance of Anger, can help so many women. I was just telling somebody yesterday that I was going to interview you, and because you had, there was something that you said in there that really resonated with this woman that I know, and she went to go look up your book and to go find out about it because it could help her. And in some ways, I see your book giving women permission that anger is okay. It is a tool or a messenger to help you get clarity for yourself. Absolutely. And in the dance of anger, it opens up by saying that anger is a signal and one worth listening to, that our anger may be a message that we're being hurt, that our rights are being violated, that our needs or wants aren't being adequately met, or our anger can... I mean, it can be a signal that we are doing more and giving more than we can comfortably do or give. And just as physical pain tells us to take our hand off the hot stove, the pain of our anger preserves the very integrity of ourself. As I said before, the problem is that, yes, it's very important that we recognize our anger Yet venting anger, you know, just venting it does not solve the problem mm -hmm. from which our anger springs. So, you know, I work with many women, and I have many examples in the book, many women get angry with ease, but getting angry is getting nowhere or even making things worse. 
So the woman is caught up in endless cycles of fighting, complaining, and blaming that go nowhere. And, you know, it's interesting. When I was writing The Dance of Anger, actually my working title was Nice Ladies and Bitches, (laughs) A Woman's Guide to Anger. And um, that title got vetoed. But the reason it was a good working title is these are the two ways that we get in trouble with anger. The nice lady way, you know, that we avoid anger and conflict at all cost. And it's not just anger and conflict we avoid. We, we avoid making clear statements of self. You know, this is what I think. This is how I see it differently from you. We avoid that if we know that's going to evoke a lot of anger and reactivity from the other person. So we end up in this de-selfed position where we give up too much self. So that was the nice lady category. And then the bitch category is the one I just mentioned where we, you know, we can get angry and we do have a legitimate anger to voice, but it's voiced in a way that just throws fuel on the fire and just brings the conversation downhill and the other person gets defensive or doesn't hear us or then blames us for being one of the strident, angry, nagging women. So these two categories, the nice lady and the quote bitch, look very different. I mean, they look as different as day and night. In the end, the outcome is the same because in the end, the woman, the real issues may not be identified and addressed. And the woman is left feeling helpless and powerless in both cases and nothing changes. So, and we all fall, you know, we all do these two things, you know, the nice lady thing of saying, well, we, you know, we, we can't speak up and it's not worth the fight. Or we do the opposite. We're fighting, we're fighting, but it's like in a reactive way that isn't leading to change. Harriet, can you explain to my listeners or give some examples of what does de-selfed looks like? Well, you know, it's funny because the example that, that came to mind immediately when you said that was actually of my father mm-hmm. um, and my parents' marriage because in my parents' marriage, my mother made all the decisions. You know, she would decide how finances were spent and, um, you know, how, how money would be managed, how my sister and I would be reared and whether my father would get one piece of toast or two. And he simply accommodated. And in fact, I never heard him say no to my mother. I never even heard him say, um, you know, I, I don't agree with that, or I just simply can't go along with that. Instead, he would be silent And then he would secretly act out with some less than honorable behavior. And I think he eventually eroded the very, you know, his own 
self-esteem and dignity. And it's interesting because in marriage, it is often men who decide, quote, it's not worth the fight, and instead they distance and stonewall and, and don't speak out. And it's interesting because with his own mother, it was the same. He he would not um, he would not speak out to her. And what I learned when I learned more about his family, which was very interesting, is that my father's family was full of cutoffs. They were a family of Russian Jewish immigrants, and when they came over to the new country, if there was a fight or someone disagreed with you, or they didn't see it your way, you know, people, family members would just stop speaking to you as if you didn't exist. And um, so when I looked at the degree of cutoff in my dad's family, you know, his big sister wouldn't talk to me or my sister, his mother wasn't talking to his big sister, his big sister wasn't talking to anybody, this one wasn't talking to that one. I understood better why my father had such a fear of speaking out, you know, coming from a family where emotional intensity was handled by cutoff. So it's not just women who are afraid to speak. And in terms of de-selfing, you know, we need to hear the sound of our own voice saying what we really think and believe. So if you're afraid, you know, if you always tell yourself, well, it's not worth the fight, it's not worth saying this, and you don't say, you know, look, Mom, I see it differently. And it's understandable that, you know, we see it two different ways, but this is how I see it. If you go long enough where you're not able to speak to the differences, you know, I mean, it's easy to speak to the differences around a very neutral topic, like, you know, I know you like vanilla ice cream, but I like chocolate. I mean, that's easy. But if we don't speak to the differences and say what we really think around issues that matter, we get de-selfed, meaning that too much of the self gets compromised under relationship pressures. And over time, you know, this can lead to depression and anxiety and and shame and, you know, low self-esteem and really any any symptom in the book. So that would be a de-selfed position. And and by the way, let me add, let me add that you know it's not that we have to address every injustice that comes along, and in fact, it's an act of maturity to refrain to know when to refrain from sharing your thoughts and feelings, and to be able to think about how and when to say what to whom. Um, yet, one needs to be able to speak when it's something that matters. So as you're talking, what makes me, what I think about is kind of this, we have these black and white mindsets, right? From one side of the pendulum to the other, there's the de-self side to the anger side. And what you're talking about is being in that space in between 
And sometimes I call that the world full of color or the shades of gray. So it's really about being very present as you check in with, okay, what am I thinking, right? And just because I'm thinking this doesn't mean I have to blurt it with this, right? Would this be effective in, you know, speaking out or, or sharing my thoughts or is it just important for me to know myself? It's, it's very important to know your, that we know ourselves what we really think and feel because a lot of us were raised in a family with a group think mentality mm-hmm. where your sense of belonging and acceptance in the family meant that you were supposed to think exactly like your mother or like mm-hmm. your father. And it could be a real sin for you to say, you know, I don't see it that way and I don't see dad that way. I have a different perspective or, or whatever. Um, you're really speaking to the facts of how, you know, the black and white, that when we're anxious or when we're, the issue is emotionally intense, all of us, all of us, get pushed to one extreme or the other. So we may get pushed into silence where you're in a relationship or a family where the lines of communication have shut down and people aren't talking about things that matter. You're not talking about things that matter. That would be one extreme. And the other extreme, you know, like you mentioned, is that Everything is spilling out. I mean, really, it's just pure anxious reactivity. <clears throat> and you're overloading the circuits. You're over-talking things. Children aren't protected enough from adult anxiety. You know, you're... I mean, people who are... When I'm anxious, my style is to over-talk things. And I really need to learn to say it shorter like I teach other people. (laughs) You know, we're always going to push one of those extremes or the other. And, you know, the ideal would be that after we blow it, we can step back and think about it and re-enter the conversation in a different kind of way. It's not like we're always going to get it right. I want to re-point out to the listeners. So here you are, you're Dr. Harriet Lerner, New York Times bestselling author, you know, sought after speaker, psychologist, really understanding this work that you do, right, with decades behind you. And you just said that um, when you are anxious, you will, you know, over talk things, unlike what you teach people to do. And, And I think that I want to stress that to the listeners out there is that you know, because so often I'll hear people beat themselves up because they're like, well, I know better, so I should be doing it better. But it can still, it still takes practice. And it doesn't mean that even when you master it, like you have, Harriet, it doesn't mean that we become perfect at it or we never slip into old behaviors. Is that not right? Now, Corin, let me make a correction for okay. all of our listeners out there. Because I am a best-selling author, and because I'm a relationship expert, actually, I get all my relationships exactly right. <laughs> so I move through my relational world with perfect clarity and calm and wisdom and wit, much like a saint or, 
you know, a highly evolved Zen Buddhist. And it's just the other people out there that seem to find relationships difficult, you know, and full of anger and disappointment and pain. So let me announce that really I get everything right. But seriously, you know, I mean, to move to to the serious side, we all have very varied levels of functioning. And if any of my readers of The Dance of Anger or any of my books um, saw me on my bad days, on my bad mother days, on my bad wife days, on my bad friends, friendship days, if anyone's, you know, were a fly on the wall during my, you know, when I get really angry or intense or frightened, no one would read my books. No one would want to come see me in therapy because I, you know, look like a, <laughs> what should I say, like a raving maniac or like I, <laughs> um, I have the brain of a reptile. Or So all of us have these different levels of functioning. And the brain, the human brain is very reactive. So when we're under stress, we, um, we're not able to think about our feelings. We're not able to make mature decisions about how, when, and if to say what to whom. And that's normal. And I'm, I'm really glad that you're making this point because I think one of the greatest sources of misery for women is they're always comparing, you know, we're Mm -hmm. always comparing ourselves to some other person who, who is doing life better or, or getting it right, you know, (laughs) and, um, it's just not like that, you know. No, there's there's a lot of compare and then despair out there. And I think Facebook has even heightened that movement because we can put an image of how I'm the perfect mother out there in that world and I get to control my PR. And then my kids see what really goes on, you know, in those moments where I'm stressed or overwhelmed and and how I may react. Not that I and I and I know better, like you. And um but there are things that we do. And I think that the my my mission in the show is to really pull behind the curtains and say, look, we are all humans experiencing, you know, this human life. And it's it there's a lot of variables that go into it. It's not about this perfection, which then triggers a lot of us into shame and secrecy. And then we, you know, we repress our anger. So that part's really important to me. So thank you for sharing, you know, even your side of how things happen for you. Right. And, and sh- you know, shame is very universal. Mm-hmm. And um, if, if you've been part of any system, a family system, um, a school system, and <clears throat> of course, middle school is the worst of all, you know, a health system, um, societal system, people are, are going to shame you. Shame is sort of the hot potato that no one can tolerate. So when people feel inadequate themselves, then they will pass along their shame to some other person or group. And shame is, shame is universal, even if people don't, you know, realize it. They may say, well, I don't feel shame. It's universal. And it makes people, 
it just makes us want to fold up and hide in the darkest corner. I, I always tell people that fear, fear makes us afraid of the dark and shame makes us afraid of the light. So, um, you know, I have another, one of my other books called The Dance of Fear, Rising Above Anxiety, Fear, and Shame to Be Your Best and Bravest Self, talks a lot about shame because it, it's, um, it's a no good emotion mm-hmm. and we have to shrink it down to size. Well, it gets in our way, doesn't it? Yes, it, it shame gets in our way. It it takes the words right out of our mouth. You know, if someone shames you, it just takes the words right out of your mouth because it it throws us back to childhood shame when we had no words to speak. And it keeps us from showing up and getting out there and speaking out. And it makes us feel unworthy and unlovable. And just when we feel shame, it, it removes us from, from feeling the flow of, of human connection. We, we feel like we don't really belong anywhere or if someone really knew us, you know, if they could really see what we look like, um, then they'd know, you know, then they would know how disgusting and awful we are. So, you know, that's, that's shame and it is powerful. And, uh, women have certainly been shamed for their legitimate anger. Women have been shamed for, for that. And, um, our society prefers guilty women, not angry women, um, so that women are taught to cultivate guilt like a little flower garden and, and to be guilty about everything, you know, guilty about leaving your work for your children or your children for your work, about guilty about not having children, guilty about feeling guilty, I mean, you name it, because when we're feeling shame and guilt we stay in place. We are not agents of change. Women have come together and all marginalized groups have come together um, in, co- in collective anger. Our collective anger is a source of strength. But no one comes together in collective shame. You know, No one has ever come to me in therapy and you know, said, do you know a good shame management group? I mean, we don't even want to talk about shame. But the point is just that, um, you know, the dance of anger was rejected for five years. And it. I believe that had a great deal to do with the fact that, you know, no one likes those angry women. No one wants to identify as as angry. And yet... As I said before, it's those angry women who have changed and challenged the lives of, of all of us. No, it definitely has. And and, and again, it's, it, I wonder if it's that pendulum swing, right? We, we repress, we repress, we repress, and then it's almost like, okay, that, that anger comes and it's on jet fuel and then we speak our voice. 
But one of the things that you talk about in the dance of anger is more about, um, you know, observing and listening to the message to get clarity of what it is that you really think compared to maybe the group think of your family of origin or of your marriage or of your workplace. But what is it that you really think? And that's the, that's the starting place, isn't it? Right. I th- the first starting point is to calm things down or rather calm yourself down and get a grip on your reactivity and your intensity because until you can step out of the soup and learn to observe the dance that you're doing with your partner or your mother or your child, that you need to first calm down in order to observe the steps, like the steps might be, you know, my my partner is very distant. And then what I do is I sort of approach him in a rat-a-tat-tat way or I pursue him for more intimacy and he then becomes more distant and then I pursue more. Um, whatever the pattern, or it might be a pattern where you're over-functioning for an under-functioning individual. You are you keep giving advice that they're not following and trying to fix it and being the expert on the other person and they are not doing well and the more they're not doing well, the more you give advice or try to fix it uh, rather than uh, doing it differently. Um, so once you calm down and in the dance of anger really learn to observe the way that you're moving in the relationship. And there are only five ways in total, you know, that we move in relationships under stress. And you learn to do that. Then you can learn to change your part in in the pattern or in the triangle. For example, I was in a very intense triangle with my mother uh, that actually went back for generations where my mom would be off the plane for five minutes and we'd be in the corner and she'd be saying to me, well, let me tell you what your father did now. And my, and it was very intense. I would get very anxious. And then what I would do is I would either come to my father's defense and try to explain him, you know, and, and reason with her or I would tend to agree with her. I'd be in her camp, you know, waving her banner. Um, but yeah, my father was really a jerk and he was certainly playing the part. Or I would, you know, I, I would, I was doing a number of things that actually kept the triangle going. So in the dance of anger, and I think these are the most difficult challenges that whether you're in a triangle or you're the distancer, or you're the pursuer, or you're the over-functioner trying to fix someone else, especially if you're a firstborn older sister of a sister, you know, you're probably an over-functioner, or you're an under-functioner, meaning you're not able to reach for your competence, you're inviting other people to take over and see you as weak or pathologize you, whatever your pattern is, And again, there are only five. There may be 50 ways to leave your lover, as the old song goes, but there's only five 
ways that we negotiate relationships under stress, the really, really hard challenge is to stop trying to change the other person, which is impossible, as you know, Mm -hmm. and to learn to observe your own steps and change your own steps in the dance. And the good news is that if you make sometimes even a small substantive change in the the dance, that the old dance can't continue. It, It can't continue in the old way. And that's a really, really difficult challenge to change your patterned way of moving um, under stress that gets you into trouble. We automatically try to change and blame the other person. Mm-hmm. And, and we do that because isn't it easier to look at somebody else, right, and fix somebody else than to go into ourselves and make, make our own tweaks, Right. And it's, you know, it's very automatic because we, you know, we are mammals and we are wired for fight, you know, fight flight response Mm -hmm. under even a little bit of stress. So what that means is it just takes a little stress and you'll see a flight response. Like I described in my dad's family, people distance, they cut off, they stop speaking to each other. That's a flight response. Or you'll see a fight response. Response. It just takes a little bit of anxiety. People will very quickly get polarized. They'll get over-focused on what the other person's doing wrong and under-focused on our own creative options to move differently. And we, this is an automatic, um, we automatically go into distance and blame unless, you know, we can reach for our more mature self and and uh, make a new plan and a new strategy, but it's, it's very, very automatic. And when we go and oh, you said something that's really important that I want to rehighlight is you said it doesn't. It doesn't when we go in and do our internal work. It doesn't have to be a huge overhaul, does it? It's just a few. We can start making just a few subtle tweaks. Isn't that right? Absolutely, and in fact. Um, when I teach people or in my books, one of the things I've noticed is that people do best when they take one idea and they are motivated to change one thing and maintain that change. I mean, not that one thing, not to do it in a hit and run way, but maintain that change over time. That is much better than trying to, you know, change everything. And because when people try to change too much, they actually end up not changing at all. So it's the direction of change you're moving in toward more voice, toward more self-focus, toward more, um, you know, trying to modify what you're doing, whether it's pursuing, distancing, over-functioning. But one, one thing do one thing differently, and then you can observe the effects of that experiment. You know, see how much anxiety about change you can sit with. 
so that is the good news. You know, it takes two people to to um, get into trouble in a relationship. It takes just takes two. It takes only one person to make that relationship better or to do something different. So not just for the dance of anger, but in my latest book, Marriage Rules, it's a book that one person can read because I'm a strong believer. Uh, Often when I work on marital problems or couple problems, I'm happy to have one person, the person who has their motor running for change, the person who's in the most pain. You know, I'll take that that one person and all my books are really written for that one person who has the intention and genuine wish to um, understand the dance and change their own steps in it. You you know, um, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about my own marriage. So I was kind of the typical overfunctioner. I'm the oldest child of a younger sister and um and I believed I could fix everything, right? And uh-huh. in my in my marriage, blamed my husband quite a bit for everything, including my own happiness. And um with one of the biggest things that I did was just starting to stay in my own business and instead of trying to tell him how he needed to live his life, just mm-hmm. just watched. Right. And just started to tune into what was going on inside of me. And it was amazing because that literally changed the trajectory of my marriage. And, um, and it was like what you said is take one thing and maintain it over time. And that's exactly what we've done. And the, the wife who used to demand that we had to go do something for Valentine's Day, my, and my husband would hate it and refuse or go and then not order something. He now is the person that says, hey, what would you like to do for Valentine's Day? And I actually don't really want to do much for Valentine's Day. Um, so it's been quite uh-huh. interesting, you know, this process that you're talking about, because I've personally experienced it in my own marriage. So, um, you know, so that's a, that's a really beautiful example. And I think when listening to an example like that, what I would want to emphasize is how how difficult it is what you did, because if you're an overfunctioner, and when your child or partner or friend starts to talk about their pain or a problem, etc., and your automatic response is to want to rush in and um, give advice or fix it or, you know, pull up slack for them, do it for them, um, it, it is very, very difficult to modify that style and to simply listen and ask questions and say things like, well, you know, that sounds really difficult. You know, what are the things you've thought of? And relate to the person's competence to figure it out. And then if they ask you for advice, you know, if they say, what should I do to be able to say, Either, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Or to be able to say, if you have a clear opinion, to be able to say, well, you know, this is what I would do in your shoes, but that's me. You know, I don't know if that would fit for, for you. And that may sound very simple 
you know, listening, our listeners who heard you talk about your changes or what I'm saying now, it is excruciatingly difficult to modify over-functioning or pursuing or distancing um, or triangling. So, yeah, but when you do, it makes such a big difference in your life. It it does make a big difference, but you're right, because we're so wired and used to doing it a certain way, right? right? right. It takes a lot of energy to be like, okay, no, I'm not going to step in. I'm going to not tell him how he should be doing or demanding that he needs to do it this way, because the more, as I observed, the more I demanded, the more he dug in his own feet, right? So I was starting to go, wait a second, this isn't working. I'm not getting the results that I want, and it's it, things are blowing up. So, but it do, it takes a lot of work, and there's also, um, I think, trust and faith, right? Because when you are doing it from this place of fear, you kind of know, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm I'm taking action, so at least I'm doing something. Versus holding back, there's having that trust of, will things work out? Will it be okay? Right? There's that questioning inside, and that's when you have that space of not doing, you have kind of time. And that can be kind of scary for somebody who, like me, is an overfunctioner who likes to be tremendously busy. Right. Change, change is very scary. It's scary to modify overfunctioning. And one of the things that you just mentioned, where you said that you were, you observed that the more you did X, the more your husband dug in his heels. That that observing um, to really become an observer in our own family, our own relationships, is also so difficult. It's a great big step to just, for example, go home for the holidays and put on your anthropologist, psychologist, observer hat and just observe the the different ways that family members uh, move under stress. Like, oh, my dad really distances and my mom triangles and gets me in the corner and talks about my brother and my brother's underfunctioning and, you know, dropping out of his drug addiction problem. And I'm in there overfunctioning and trying to explain everything to everyone and be the peacemaker and to learn to observe. And then what you said is that you observed that what you were doing wasn't working. That is a tremendous challenge because humans, this is really interesting. Even rats in a maze will vary their behavior if they hit a dead end, you know, like three times. But in this regard, humans don't behave as intelligently as laboratory animals. So whatever we're doing with our anger, we're pursuing, we're advising, we're getting really intense, we're being silent and, you know, withdrawing, whatever we're doing if it's not working, do we really, you know, step back and think clearly about how we can move differently? No, we do more of the same. And I think, you know, the challenges of the dance of anger, we've really touched on the main ones of being able to calm down and get a grip on your reactivity. So when you do speak, it's not like in this intense rat-a-tat way that stirs up defensiveness. And to be able to say what you think and feel about things that matter 
and to be able to observe the relationship dance, whether it's distancing and pursuing, over-functioning, under-functioning, all the triangles we're in where family members speak about other family members but not directly to them, mm-hmm. etc. Um, you know, this is the challenge of several lifetimes, but the good news, as we talked about, is sometimes a very small change makes a very big difference. Ooh. It's getting started that's mm-hmm. so difficult. I think that's... I mean, you can't just read the dance of anger. You actually have to think about whether you want to do one of the things, you know, that you find relates to you. Well, and that's why I like to use the word practice, right? You go and you practice Uh it. Uh And and that's why it's not about perfection or even mastery. You continuously are practicing it. And if you can get into that observer mindset, then you can go back and and reflect on, okay, this this is what was going on. This is what I did. And have honesty with yourself of how did that work out and what can I tweak? Exactly. exactly. And also, as you were stressing before, to avoid perfectionism at all costs because it is simply part of being real humans that we're going to blow it, we're going to behave badly, we're going to get derailed. And it takes tremendous maturity to be able to view to view this, you know, with, with, well, with humor and with, um, you know, personal growth doesn't flourish in an atmosphere of self-flagellation and self-blame and, oh my God, you know, I did this terrible thing. And, you know, it's a challenge to be able to understand that we're going to blow it and we're going to get derailed. And, to have the maturity and um, integrity to try to repair it, you know, to say to our kid or whoever it is, our friend, um, to make a repair attempt to be able to apologize and say I was really overly intense and off base and, you know, I apologize for that. And then, you know, we keep, as you say, practicing while avoiding perfectionism like the plague. (laughs) The arch enemy of all women, especially Mm -hmm. mothers, but the arch enemy of all women. Um, So, yeah, you know. Well, I think that's a great takeaway for the listeners is to go and practice and avoid perfectionism. And is there one more takeaway you'd have for them Um, so that they can practice using anger to provide clarity in their life? Well, I think I would go back to what I said earlier about the importance of lowering your intensity and lowering your reactivity. Because without that, everything's just going to be spilling over or shut down and not in a useful way. So you need to calm yourself down so you can enter a conversation in a new way and think. And then I guess the next question is, well, how do you calm down? And my answer is any way you can. You know, 
I mean, there are all kinds of things that help people calm down, from meditation to medication to therapy to gardening to dancing to singing to being outdoors. It's different for every person. Um, but that's the, the biggest first step. And then when we, if you're calming down, um, and then you're, you know, looking, for example, at the dance of anger, you'll, you'll be able to um, start observing the dance and get some pretty specific ideas about how to modify your own part in it. And will you get the results you want? Um, Sometimes yes, sometimes no. The important thing is you're going to stand on firmer ground as a person, more solid ground, and and um, you'll have a stronger sense of self and self-esteem if you are proceeding with clarity and courage and conviction in your relationships, irrespective of how the other person responds. Harriet, thank you so much for coming back again today. My pleasure. Let's do it again. Absolutely. I'm in for that. This is Corinne Modokaitis, and my guest today was Dr. Harriet Lerner, and her book, The Dance of Anger, is a New York Times bestseller and has sold 3 million copies. Wow, that was a great conversation that I just had with Dr. Harriet Lerner, where we talked about anger and anger providing clarity. One of the things that we talked a little bit about was shame. And, you know, I'm so thankful that Harriet wrote The Dance of Anger. And if you listen to one of the previous interviews I've done that's on the interview page, she goes into the story behind the publishing process of her getting hired and and fired and hired and fired to actually get this work out there. And I do believe that one of the reasons that we don't like to talk about anger or we don't even want to feel anger is that shame surrounds that, right? We as nice women shouldn't have anger. It's only those women who are out of control, right? Those judgments that we have and shame provides a, a, a storm. And as Brene Brown has said, and who's, she's been a frequent guest on the show as well, shame loves secrecy and shame is corrodes connection. So you think about that. And if we have anger and if we don't allow ourselves to feel it, it doesn't mean, Harriet doesn't say act on it or lash out on people. It's not permission to do that, but to listen to it. Listen to that anger. Listen to the message. Help you define your voice. Help you hear what your beliefs are. Help you hear what your uh, thoughts are. And use that to get connected to yourself so that you can be really clear. And again, like one of the things we, we had talked about was it doesn't mean it gives you permission to blurt right? When you get into that observing mindset, it's about knowing when is an appropriate time to make a comment and when is maybe not an appropriate time. And like Harriet shared with us, when she becomes anxious, she over talks, right? Which is something she even teaches people not to do. But when she gets into that fight, flight, or flee state, her brain just automatically goes in a direction. So it takes practice and tweaking and practice and tweaking. So I really invite you to go back and, you know, think about this. And, and I love the idea of, she says of, you know, just take one thing, just one thing and really work on maintaining that 
We get so caught up in this shiny object syndrome of, okay, I'm going to do this. Oh, well, that didn't really work very well. So now I'm going to go try this. Oh, that didn't work. I'm going to go try this, you know? And in the course of two weeks, we're exhausted because we've tried 12 different things and nothing's worked really well, but we've never really practiced it. You know, it takes time to see like, does this really work? Right. And it, and the other part that we didn't talk about in this interview, but we've talked about in other interviews and is also in her book, The Dance of Anger is, when we start to change one thing in ourselves, and even though it may be moving us in a better light in our relationship, those around us may get fearful and they'll, they may do a change back attack. Like, why do you, why are you doing it that way? You know, why are you all of a sudden out of my business and withdrawing? Right. And then they start to create stuff because they're used to having some of those combustions. So those are things to look at as you go out and, you know, I want to say play with anger, but really play with listening to what is inside your voice. You know, one of the things that she said was, we need to hear the sound of our voice of what we think and need, right? And to give ourselves permission that what we believe really does matter. So I really invite you to pay attention to that as you go out and practice this stuff. Um, it's, it's so important and to not beat yourself up and think that, oh, well, so-and-so never does this. We never really know what goes on behind closed doors, right? And a lot of times we judge our insides to other people's outsides or our insides to the Facebook highlight reel that's out there. So really think about, you know, what it is. It's more important to know what do you believe? You know, what is it that you're trying to create? And is what you're doing getting you those results? And what is one nugget from this interview that you can take away and go and practice? Remembering that even just observing, like if you're an over-functioner like me, even just observing is going to take a tremendous amount of energy to do that and not to jump in and fix stuff. There's constantly thoughts that are going through my head now of, just hold the space, Corinne. Just hold the space. What is the space that you want? Right. Or I, I envision my home being a nest. You know, it's a safe place for my kids. And so when I act out in anger and it's not that safe place, right, it is about me checking in and going, is this what I'm trying to create? Is this what I'm trying to cultivate for my kids? Right. And that those have led to towards much better parenting moments because even when I do my anger blow up, I can come back. This is not ideal, but I can come back because I don't allow shame to keep those secrets and me hide away, I'll come back and say, you know what? I'm sorry that I acted this way. I was coming from a place of fear. This is why I'm concerned. And this is, you know, and I I did have the anger and it's because I care. I didn't handle it appropriate. So I'm going to work on that. And this is something that, you know, here are my concerns about this situation. And I remember that happened about a year ago. And um, my husband kind of watched the whole thing. And then later he looked at me when our kids had gone to bed, he said, that was one of your best parenting moments. So it's not about doing it perfectly. It's about practicing, observing, tweaking, being really honest with yourself and be willing to make mistakes. Just, you know, be careful with those mistakes. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see 
the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself if that is possible for them. What is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.